Hi, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is May 29th, 2015. Today's burning issue is press freedom in Japan. Is there freedom of the press? And if there is, how is it different? How is it managed and manipulated by the government? Is it different from press freedom or freedom of the press as we understand it, for example, in the United States or in other countries of the world? Thank you for sending your comments and your recommendations and how we can better this show. Today I'm joined by guest commentator, Dr. Nancy Snow. Nancy Snow is a well-known feature throughout Tokyo, speaking at several events. She's teaching at Sophia University and at Keio. She holds a Fulbright scholarship, and she is joining me today to discuss press freedom as it impacts Japan's politics and the general business climate. Thank you for joining me today, Nancy. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. So today we're talking about freedom of the press. What is the current state of press freedom here in Japan? There's been a lot of movement going on. The Abe administration is growing in strength. It is exerting its strength in many different ways. It's trying to revise the constitution. It's trying to pass bills that allow it to be more proactive in collectively defending itself and building up the military powers. And in doing that, it's rubbing up pretty quickly against people who really don't want it. Our issue last week was on the opposition parties and what impact they have, what voice they have, how much power do they have in this dynamic that's going on. The, the political power is pretty much managed by a coalition between the LDP and Komeito. So what's your take on press freedom here in Japan? What's the political state going on right now? You know, I would point to two events, one being, of course, March 2011, changing our sense about how the press covers disasters in the case of the, the triple disaster that we know is 311 sometimes. So 2011, and then I would look at the return of Abe in 2012, December 2012, because what I sense with Abe is that he really learned this second time around, his administration, that in order to roll out these issues that we've been talking about for The contentious weeks, ones. Yes. You do have to manage information and information management. I've been teaching classes in media and information for many, many years. That goes along a continuum. It can include, of course, working with the press in a, in a very uh, cooperative, sort of reinforcing manner, kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But it can also go across to uh, managing the press or controlling uh, reporters, individuals who write things that are critical of what the government is doing. So that goes to an opposite extreme of maybe press control to even government propaganda, if you will. But I think for, for many of us who are newer to Japan as I am, you've been here a long time, but I learned very quickly that 2011, the way it was covered internationally Initially, it was looking at the disaster, covering the survivors, the devastation, but it shifted to what did people know, what did institutions know, and when did they know it? Mm -hmm. And so when some of the coverage became more critical, you, you saw this sort of the government almost pull back. And there are some players here like TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, uh, that was managing, in the case of Fukushima Daiichi plant, uh, that really didn't step forward and, and tell the truth about what they knew and, and the radiation and safety issues uh, regarding that power plant. So 
those of us who follow press issues, we, we could see there is something going on here mm -hmm. with information control and information management. And then when you couple it with Abe, the rollout of Abenomics, Womenomics, and with even Abe and his close advisors really finger pointing to people, whether at NHK or if they're on some TV show and they've been too critical of the Abe administration, wow, you begin to think, what's happening? Mm -hmm. What's going wrong here in Japan? Add to that two organizations that I think all viewers should really look at, and they're very respectable, Reporters Without Borders, which does an annual sort of index of press freedom in the oh. world. The other one is Freedom House. Freedom House in New York is uh, Reporters Without Borders is sort of more kind of advocacy and has more of an agenda. And then with Freedom House, they're very middle of the road and they just write things as they are. But Freedom House has now given Japan a score currently of 25 out of 100. And so the, the higher you are, the less press freedom you have. And Japan in 2002 was at, ranked at 17. So you want to get closer to number one, which is total fr press freedom. And of course, there is no absolute press freedom anywhere. <laughs> so um, Japan as a whole is going in the wrong direction. And I've got uh, in front of me what uh, Freedom House has been saying. And if you read the narrative year by year, they start out and they say press freedom in Japan is constitutionally guaranteed and generally respected in practice. Mm -hmm. However, and then they go on, and the longest narrative they've had is on Japan, the most recent uh, publication, Japan Press Freedom 2014, referring to the year before. And it goes on for a page and a half. And it talks about changes here. You haven't mentioned the state secrets law, right? but that's another one where it's very murky about uh, information, how you can get it. And if you get information, say in the areas of defense, foreign affairs, counterterrorism, um, then you could run into trouble with the government if you publish something that is considered harmful to the overall sort of good uh, state of being here in Japan. It, 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 again, it's not very well defined, mm -hmm. but I think from a reporter journalist perspective, that should cause some worry about, uh, I mean, anybody writing anything, you don't want to, you want to be accurate, but you, you don't want to feel like, gosh, is this going to put me in front of the authorities? Even if I tell the access, truth. Huh? Right? Or is it going to limit my access That's right. later well, down the road? Access is also the key word here, Tim, because if, if, again, if you're new to this system, we have the press clubs. Right. And so there's clearly kind of different channels. If you're, if you're tied to one of the big three dailies, which cover about, I think, between Mainichi, Yomiori, and Asahi Shimbun, that's about over half of the readership in Japan. And this is a very, very high print readership population in Japan. But if, if you're a reporter there and you wanna maintain your good ties to the government, of course you're part of the press club and you tend to be 
just a uh, stenographer. I mean, you're just sort of reporting what government officials are saying. You're not really questioning it. And there's also a lot of homogeneity that, uh, to this as well, mm -hmm. that you don't get a whole lot of uh, different interpretation because it's mostly news. It's the style, even in broadcasting like NHK, it's kind of just giving the news and opinion type writing or opinion type journalism, I wouldn't say is really the strong suit here mm -hmm. in Japan. Maybe with the weeklies, maybe with some of the tabloids for sure. And they have less to lose because they're not part of these press clubs. But we don't have a real um, de well-developed investigative journalism uh, type system mm -hmm. in, in Japan. And there's no real payoff to it. If anything, you'll get probably run out of town. So if you're going to do investigative journalism here, you better have your own money to do it where you can't really be touched by the powers that be. And if you can do that, I would, I would welcome that because we would get a lot more interesting stories. Well, there are lots of interesting <laughs> stories to be had. I mean, yeah. the Weekly magazines are replete with all sorts of scandals, and they, they delve into issues. Uh, most of the time, they're pretty accurate, but they they are a little bit um, adventurous. Well, and can I they ask have great, you about they those? They have great readership. They do have great readership. Now, they're Japanese language, right? That's right. So I'm not reading them. But my question would be, is the reporting, the scandals, is it just about this personality versus that personality? Because I think the, the landscape view of what's going on interests me more because it tells me more about the system as a whole. If it's just Mr. Watanabe got in trouble with mm -hmm. Mr. <laughs> Abe, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like too bad, so sad for those two. But I, it doesn't really tell me about the landscape. It's sure. a, in, when we teach journalism, we talk about spotlight coverage versus landscape. And a lot of the way that news is delivered is spotlight. And even the local news where, say, most people would get their information, I think it's quite comparable to the U.S., so it's local network type news. They'll go from the weather to a sports story to a, some event happening, maybe a film premiere. And so it makes it difficult then for the viewer to connect the dots right. because it's just spotlight this, spotlight that. But the, uh, as you said, I'm, I'm sure those are very entertaining, those sort of scandal-type magazines. Um, but I, I, I do wish that we had in Japan more of this sort of credible-type um, reporting where you could be investigative and you could be critical, and it, it would be good for the society, the health mm -hmm. of the democracy. Well, clearly, Japan is a democracy, and one of the the real anchor issues of any vibrant democracy is freedom of the press. Right. And Reporters Without Borders did publish, they publish every year a, a, a barometer where, where these countries stand. And Japan definitely took a hit after the uh, 311 mm. triple disaster of uh, Fukushima, mm. the nuclear explosion, the, the tsunami, and uh, that, that really changed this country. And the um, the score for Japan at that time was around 2021, something like that, and over the last several years, that's gone from you know the low 20s to now about 65. Mm. So there has been a, a, a big impact there. The uh, the national secrets law that went into effect has a chilling effect. 
the episodes that you mentioned earlier about the reporters being called in. Mm. Uh, actually, the reporters weren't called in. Their bosses, That's the, right. the, the executives of the broadcasting companies, were called in to be um, dressed down by um, members of the uh, LDP. Well, and the other thing, too, just to do a little comparative press, in the United States, if you're a reporter, you're a writer, maybe you write for the Wall Street Journal, whatever it may be, there is sort of this firewall of protection. You've got the editors and the publishers. Now, the editors are working on stories, but the publishers, the business side people, right. including the advertising side of it, they are supposed to not be commingling with the reporters because the reporters want to go out and collect stories. Here in Japan, there is a lot more of this commingling that is related to the press clubs, but it's sort of the business model is that you are you're profiting and the reporter is part of that profiting process. So the reporter really isn't allowed to be too free in his or her sort of choosing of stories. It's, it's very much centrally sort of top-down mm -hmm. controlled. Uh, not that much different from what I've complained about pretty regularly with central politics, very centralized, top-down, hierarchical. So how are you then as a reporter, a journalist, supposed to really, you might have, you might have great enterprise stories that you come up with, but that, that editor is going to, and publisher, is going to wield a, a much greater power than, than I would say in, in the U.S. because we have a longer history going back 100 years ago to the muckrakers and uh, to, of this more independent style journalism and you just really don't have that legacy here. Mm -hmm. Interesting to see with the way that the press developed, I believe there was some pushback at the end of World War II, there was some effort to try to make the press more independent, and then the conservatives pushed that down. And so that's when the press clubs became, uh, they started to proliferate. What you say is absolutely true, but there, you know, there is press freedom here. Mm. It's on a bandwidth of you know, around 60 of 180 countries that they reviewed. It's, it's losing space, but it's still press freedom of, of some, some dimension. And there are some unique aspects of, uh, of the press situation here in Japan that I think are unique to Japan. For example, as you mentioned earlier, the press club. You have to be a part of the, the club to get into the press reviews, to be able to ask a question, for example. And for, uh, for the foreign press or for interlopers, for an independent press reporter, it's extremely, extremely difficult to get access to ask questions or to delve into these these issues at any you know significant uh, level. Well, I think with the press clubs too, you are assigned a beat, and then your beat is sort of following the ministry. I mm -hmm. mean, you you sort of become really tied to a particular ministry. That's a very different approach uh, to typically. If you have a beat, you're doing police beat. Of course, you get to know the police mm -hmm. and neighborhoods, but here the way it is so clearly tied A to B, B to A between the national government ministries and a particular reporter from one of these major dailies or from an NHK, uh, makes it, again, very difficult for somebody to break in to the, um, well, they can come into the business, but they're coming into it and they're not changing 
the status quo. It's not as if you're going to get a whole bunch of reporters who are going to make this a more independent press mm -hmm. because you get to be pretty cozy with these minister officials. And for anyone who's watched the comings and goings, as I've been to several of the ministries, mostly Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but it's quite heady when you go there or you're near the prime minister's residence because you see these sedans going in and out with the drivers. It's all very elite looking. And it makes you uh, wonder if, if I were covering that beat, uh, how critical am I going to be? I mean, if anything, I'm going to really identify strongly with the, the message and whatever they're trying to get across from the mm -hmm. ministry. It reminds me of the debate we had during the war in Iraq with the so-called embedded reporters right. who were, of course, the reporters sent out with the specific battalions and, and troops. It was a different system to, say, the pool reporting that took place during Gulf War One. So with the embeds, the thought was, well, they can see what it's really like uh, for the boots on the ground. And report in real time. And report in real time. And it, and it made for some incredible dramatic coverage. But there was this debate back and forth about how objective can you remain? Because you are relying on these soldiers for your very life. Yes. So, um, and that's, of course, what got Brian Williams <laughs> in trouble because he was reporting about really being close to death and that he was saved by soldiers, and it turned out he had embellished quite a bit. But here, you don't have the boots on the ground mm -hmm. so much, but you do have the effect of kind of the ministers on the run. And so you, or if you, if you look at Abe, wherever he shows up, there's this just talk about a pool Mm -hmm. of reporters around him. These are going to be the same people who cover Abe all the time. And I know it's been, it's leaked out with Abe 2.0 or the second term Abe that he has been having these sushi dinners, as they call, <laughs> call them, with some of the reporters. You know what? There's nothing illegal about no. that. It's a getting to know you session. But in the context of what's ha happening systemically with this chilling effect and with this lack of really independent journalism, you've, you've got to question it a bit mm -hmm. because it's just naturally human after a while to start to identify with, and, and especially when you are getting wined and dined, how can that not impact Mm -hmm. the next story idea that you might have. You might think twice about being too critical of Abe next Oh, absolutely. Time. Well, listen, um, you, you know that I worked in Japanese politics about 30 years ago. I do I, know. I was, I was assigned <laughs> to a member of the parliament, and people frequently wonder, what do these guys actually do? And um, they actually are pretty busy. And my particular member of the diet, he was in the upper house, um, not every night of the week, but almost every night of the week, when he finishes up his, his duties, he's gone out to a dinner, he's made a couple of speeches, he comes back to his residence, invariably there are two or three or four or five reporters waiting. Oh my gosh. And hmm. they come upstairs, they invade his, uh, his living room, he's invited them in, they order some sushi, they have drinks, they smoke cigarettes until two o'clock in the morning, okay? These are all men, right? 
Um, <laughs> yes, almost exclusively men. Right, okay. You're right. Um, and that's for a, a reason that is easily, you know, defined. You yeah, know? sure, it's, sure. Uh, this is a tough job, and you've got to have a strong liver to do it. Um, but also their wives are at home with their children, right? I mean, because if you're a woman reporter and say you had a child, you wouldn't be able to go hang out until 2 in Listen, the morning. Listen, working for the press here in Japan is one of the toughest jobs. Toughest, it's, I would imagine. Um, you know, yeah. you still have to show up at 9 o'clock, but you've got to wine and dine. And what you're trying to do is ingratiate yourself with a member of the parliament. And this was just one, one member, my member, okay? This happens to everybody, and the more powerful you are, the more um, influential you are, the more often you'll be hit on. Mm. And so there might be reporters from different areas, but they are assigned to you. And they'll come in and it's an information exchange. Some of the stuff is off the record, some of the stuff is on the record, but members of the parliament vitally need this as a secondary source of information that they're getting from the ministries and from the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is managed information too. That is another pillar of how Japan actually operates has been you know, written about by, by many scholars, Van Wolfren, Ezra Vogel, and, and that sort of thing. It is, it's one of the pillars of, of Japan society. And one of those pillars is the political pillar. There are glass um, separators. There's, there's transparency, but sometimes it's not full transparency. So these reporters, they're doing this with other members of the diet. They're doing it with the ministries, and they really have a great grip on, on what actually is going on. So, you know, to have the government involved in the decimation of, um, of news and stories and the, the texturing of that is, I think, a, a worrying feature of Japanese politics. You know what I think is missing here, too? We have a number of shows in the United States where reporters go on the air and they talk about how they cover uh, an issue or cover Congress or cover the White House. And it is, uh, there's even, um, there are several shows that are more kind of critical of the media system as a whole. I don't believe there's anything comparable here where you really are getting sort of an educational lesson as a member of the public or just if you're somebody like myself being a media and politics scholar, I would love a show like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it sounds like what you're describing with the reporters going to meet with the uh, diet members, I wonder if there there's a little bit of a gray area there because it almost reminds me of a lobbyist in mm -hmm. a sense or even a public relations type exercise. And I, I think that that's the change uh, between the U.S. and Japan is Japan is it's sort of hard to separate PR from the mm -hmm. press, from lobbying, being more of an advocate for an issue. Because if I if if I were a reporter here, I don't know how I would uh, if I would want to go with one of those big dailies or if I would want to start something on my own. I suppose it's you're much closer to power when you're with the big dailies, and so that's got to be very seductive to them. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's the luck of the draw because usually mm -hmm. when you enter into a a publishing house or a newspaper company. You enter as a first-year freshman and you, you work your way up. And if you are assigned a beat and you're told that this is what you're supposed to do, even your maybe your political bend will change 
to accommodate those of your employer because your employer is foremost. Your personal issues, your personal uh, views on political issues would probably be subsumed. Mm. And the most important thing for people who are, you know, trying to work their way into the uh, the corporate culture here is my job. I want my job. I want to mm. keep my job. I want to be good at it, and I want to be recognized by my my uh, superiors for performing well and to get a an, an ish, a, a position of of higher authority later. So these these posts that they're assigned to with members of the the parliament, various ministries, that sort of thing, they might change over time, but what these fellows want is they want to have a career in writing and in reporting. So it might just be a stint where they're there for four or five years and then they move on. But um, one of the things I, I failed to mention is that not only does the member of the diet meet with these reporters on a regular basis, but also there's a breakfast meeting with the, um, the executives of the various dailies and uh, television programs too. So there's a breakfast briefing that we had about once a month. Mm. And um, I would sit in the back, uh, he was sitting at the table, and we would be talking about all sorts of... Um, was really... it called Politics and Eggs? It was not called Politics and Eggs. The reason I'm asking is because in New Hampshire, the first in the nation presidential primary, they would have, you know, they have the presidential candidates come in and they uh, make pancakes and they throw the pancakes up in oh. the air and then they have eggs and sometimes they throw it up so high. The chefs do that or the members do that? <laughs> the members do that. Oh. And so, you know, not every presidential candidate is really good at making a mm -hmm. pancake, but they're sure. trying to humanize themselves as okay. well. Here's my question, and that is, what is the role of the press? What is the purpose of press in society? Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to when I was putting together my proposal for my Abe Fellowship and, and that is now leading into this book on Brand Japan. I'm finding out that a large chunk of this book is going to be about the press. And I didn't anticipate that. About that. But the press as it relates to the notion of the public. In the citizenry. So my my topic proposal in 2012 was called From Operation Tomodachi to No Nukes, Rethinking the Public in Japanese Diplomacy since 311. And I've kind of altered that a bit to rethinking the public in general. It's mm -hmm. not just public diplomacy, but rather what role does journalism have in informing, educating the public? Because the, the Western-style uh, concept of journalism, and of course in the U.S. specifically with the First Amendment, it is about the press operating as a fourth estate. So that meaning that the press is holding government accountable. It has more of a watchdog if not an adversarial function. So if you're a good reporter, you have to always be careful about not overplaying your hand with those you cover. Right. And it doesn't sound like if you, if you were to do that here and you were to be too objective and too distant, you're hurting your career. Well, we've seen that just recently. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, a retribution will be had if you write a piece that's unflattering to the prime minister. And then I relate it to a larger systemic issue here, and that is the role of the university. Because 
we often, too, we, we have this uh, system of tenure in the university, and that is designed around free speech. The idea being that the professor, there are professors who give the facts and lecture, but there are also professors who profess. They give an opinion on the events of the day. And so the university system over time was designed to protect the free speech of those professors, mm -hmm. that they too could comment and critique the larger society and uh, enact these roles as public scholars, more in the public interest. So interestingly, I've brought up Koichi Nakano before, there are now public scholars who have been critical of the administration here who are being singled out too, mm -hmm. because in the case of Nakano, he is a darling of the press, especially I say a darling, meaning he's often quoted. He's very quotable and, and he says things that really need to be said. He does, and yet he's got his street cred. He has all the credentials, um, but he's maybe not saying things that the administration wants to hear. It, it, they, they, it looks much better though for Japan to have someone like sure. Nakano. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I don't quite get, is this sort of, this pushback really sends the wrong message internationally, because Japan is held to a higher standard, um, maybe not to the standard of the U.S., because we're always getting into trouble with this, our ideals versus, for instance, with Iraq, our ideal being the First Amendment, but then you had groups that were paying Iraqis to write pro-U.S. Right. Um, stories. Um, so, but, but Japan is held to a higher standard because of it, being a professed democracy, and in particular in this region where there is some more control of the press, mm -hmm. um, then Japan could be a model for other countries. So I, I just, I mean, the press clubs aren't going to go away. I don't think they've had quite, uh, they're, they're not really talked about as, not, uh, as often, but I would like to see more sort of independent reporters here and also foreign press who aren't then singled out for being uh, so critical of Japan. I mean, too many foreign reporters who come here, in the case of the German reporter, uh, Karsten Germis, who he returned to Germany. Right. And he had a parting shot. And he had a parting shot, but there again, parting shot. It's not as if he wrote that when he was halfway through his tenure here. Which this is telling is so, too, isn't it? It's very telling because I picture I mean, this, this is such a typical road that people take is that they they allow this to just build up inside of them. And then when they're finally free, or in his case, he's back in his home country, then he says, this is not the country that I encountered mm -hmm. five years ago. And uh, and that's why his his piece went so viral, because it's like, wow, look, this is a guy, he's got a message. He's like the canary in the coal mine. Right. You know, he. This is a foreboding message, but it, it's sad that people can't be critical when they're in the mainstream. Yes. It's well, only when they're out of it that they can be critical. Well, everybody wants to protect their. their I know. Position. I know. I'm talking like it's so easy. But well, yeah. Well, the other <laughs> it's kind not of easy. the other kind of unique feature of of press in Japan, and it's a it's a big part of just Japanese culture, is that even small criticism can can hurt. And in That's Japan, true. in Jap Japanese culture, That's right. people avoid that like the plague. They, they avoid criticism. They avoid confrontation. 
They avoided being associated with any kind of um, dispute or or uh, disagreement. You you never see you know for example uh, fights in the streets even among among drunk people. So people really avoid that. And so uh, in their language and the way that they use criticism is also I think really um, modified significantly. And on top of that is the cold water that's poured on just natural discourse of issues of importance by saying, you know, that that could qualify as a state secret. You're not supposed to be talking about that. We could interpret that as being critical of the government and maybe even subversive. You know, and that's an excellent point about the cultural dynamic and very true that uh, it, it's almost part of the literature. I guess it's the Nihon Genron mm -hmm. of sort of that's not being Japanese to be over, overly critical. Uh, and perhaps maybe that's the role of some of these foreign reporters to come here, not to bash Japan, but rather if Japan on the one hand is trying to internationalize to show what the world mm -hmm. is saying, reporting, and as a way of just enhancing their understanding. I mean, you know, take the criticism on its face and not look at it as trying to change who you are as a Japanese. I mean, this is this is a fine line, I realize that, but critique can be very liberating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be you're losing your temper, you are not uh, being a contributor to the whole, the collective whole. It, it, it can be, it has, there has to be an outlet here for some type of uh, dissent. And uh, I think where it goes is often sort of underground or mm -hmm. maybe online and anonymous, uh, what is it, 2chan. Or right. <laughs> um, so people are going to naturally migrate somewhere. We saw this uh, during the Cold War in the Soviet Union, the rise of these underground newspapers. Mm -hmm. Wherever there is control, then you, that you know, hot steam will build up, has to go somewhere. So here in Japan, it's going to go somewhere. How, how about this? Let's just step back a little bit and take a look at it in a different kind of perspective. So the Abe administration came into power. Uh, Reporters Without Borders pegged uh, Japan's press freedom at about 21, and now it is at 65. Um, throughout that time, um, the Abe administration has promoted what has become called Abenomics. It's a financial plan to get Japan back on its feet. It hasn't quite worked, has it? No. At the same time, the yen, the value of the yen has fallen almost 50% over that time. Today it's pegged at about 124 yen to the dollar. I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, in the, it, it is the <laughs> lowest point in the last 12 years. Maybe these things are all interrelated. Maybe the fact that freedom of the press is being managed, is being uh, suppressed, that the, the story is being um, watered down, also has an impact on the other issues that we have throughout the economy. Well, I would also add to that TPP, because for anybody who's looking at that uh, debate, look at the coverage of TPP in the United States. And there is, an, there is sort of an outcry now of people saying, uh, we don't want this to just be rushed through without some information put mm -hmm. forward to how it's going to impact us. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that if you're controlling and managing 
the narrative, which it sounds like it's happening here, does that then lead to sort of, a, you know, things are looking better, you know, with the weakening yen, you get a lot more tourists here, but it hasn't quite played out with the exports, I don't believe. No, it's, you, a, it's benefited it has, the exports, it just hasn't, it hasn't benefited the people here who have to import at a higher price. Right, yeah. right. And, um, but, you know, again, with, uh, and from what I understand too, kind of a curiosity with Abenomics, I think what was missing in the narrative was what was happening to people at the level of the grassroots in terms of the rise in the sales tax. Right. I think that was very significant, combined with the declining savings rate. Mm -hmm. So there are stories here that the press could cover, including uh, the increase in poverty in Japan, the increase in the gap between the wealthy and the sort of more working class or middle class. I'm sure- The declining in population. Yes, declining population. But in 2013, Tim, there was a story about the rise in the sale of Ferraris mm -hmm. and the decline in the sale of beers. And they were the reporter was trying to make a correlation there that it, it's Japan, the wealth is getting stronger and more concentrated, but the everyday worker feels like, hey, I'm not showing much for all this work. And you also have so many who are working part-time and they don't have the benefits of full-time workers. For some reason, too, in Japan, there's this belief of this cradle-to-grave security. That's not happening anymore. But you still have a system, the university system, where the young people are going to the big companies. Mm -hmm. Is it in their junior year? Right. And uh, they, you know, they all dress similarly, and they go and they try to get these jobs, assuming that they're going to have this job security. It, it's a global economy. It's also global journalism now. Mm -hmm. So that's something that the reason I care so much about this issue is that Japan is a global player and it's trying to change its role in terms of military and uh, going from you know the defense strictly to more on the offense. Well, let's see Japan rise to the occasion with its free press too. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, the reason why today's issue, today's burning issue is freedom of the press is because it really does impact a lot of the issues. In fact, as I look at the topics that we've handled on Tokyo on Fire, each one of them is impacted by the freedom of the press sure. issue. Sure, that's right. Well, and again, it's because I would even add something like Cool Japan because uh, really ultimately, uh, you're talking about who's telling the stories and how are they being told. And uh, when I would teach uh, press, this is something I learned from Herbert Schiller, who was one of my mentors in journalism. He started the journalism department at UC San Diego. He used to actually teach a class called How to Read the New York Times. And he would have the students go through and take the newspaper and cut out all the advertising mm -hmm. and then hold up the <laughs> newspaper and it looked like Swiss cheese because about 60% of the news was nothing but sponsored information and it was a kind of a client with a PR advertising company. So it wasn't straight news. Then he would also have them look at news versus opinion. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see, as I said earlier, there's there's news here, it's, it's, uh, it, it sort of comes across the same at times, 
But you you know, the opinion pages are really supposed to come alive for people. Even letters to the editor, having people comment to articles, that is our version of the public square. Mm -hmm. That's our way to engage in conversation. And I think in some of the press freedom issues, it's not surprising to me, it keeps percolating every week. It's because we all have a yearning to share stories. We're sort of not that different from sitting around the campfire as kids or, you know, going back centuries to having a campfire out in the woods, you know, where we were, we just shared stories with each other. And so that's why this having a vibrant press is so important. It's who's telling the stories. And I was going to say with Schiller too, he would have the students actually circle who were the sources for the stories and you would get a lot of unnamed sources or mm-hmm. kind of insider people. And what was missing is that you were not hearing the voices of the underclass. You were not getting the picture of the so-called losers in society, the ones who weren't benefiting from the big economic deals, uh, because they also don't have much of a lobby. Right. I mean, you know, TEPCO... I think TEPCO's uh, advertising budget, does it outshine Toyota? And it's like, has a huge, huge impact in society here because it spends multi-millions just in advertising alone. So of course, if you have the money to spend there, your story's going to be featured. Your voice is going to be a lot louder Mm -hmm. than somebody who doesn't have that advocacy. I don't know TEPCO's advertising budget, but I can tell you that since the triple disasters of 311, their advertising budget has has exploded. Uh, I don't mean to use that as a pun, but... I'll tell you what it is, by the way, Tim. The company... All right, the 2011 earthquake, this is from Freedom House, highlighted... Uh, the influence of TEPCO on Japan's advertising industry, the company reportedly spends the equivalent of 238 million, which is about 24 billion yen a year on advertising. Mm -hmm. And Freedom House, as I said, which is very middle of the road, not really an advocacy group, says a factor that likely contributed to the media's more conservative reporting on its handling of the nuclear crisis. Mm -hmm. So that's where you are connecting the dots. Mm -hmm. That's what you wanna do, is look at advertising budgets of these companies, and then how does that play out in the news, in the reportage overall? Well, I think a large portion of that is also crisis management. Mm. I mean, they are trying to protect the interests of their shareholders and to keep their company afloat. I mean, it it is in deep, deep trouble. Sure, sure. So, I, I mean, where do we go from here? There was, uh, I think in the wake of 311, there was a Free Press Association of Japan mm-hmm. that got started, but it hasn't really taken off. It's remained rather small. I don't really hear much about it. Um, you do have the uh, problem, too, with the, the foreign press. We don't have the numbers here in Japan like we used to during the go-go years of the 70s and 80s. So foreign press reporters or foreign bureaus have been in a decline as the same reporters have gone on to Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. other areas. So it leads to that feeling of, it reminds me of the uh, U.S. Embassy spokesman in the New York Times, the story that was released last year about 
foreign government influence and think tanks. And the Japanese embassy spokesman said, well, we're spending this money because Japan isn't necessarily the most interesting right. subject in the world. Um, I think Japan is very, very interesting and worth covering because of some of these challenges. Mm -hmm. and, but I'm just not sure, you know, the pressure shouldn't come just from the outside. Right. I mean, as a foreigner here, it's sort of easy to say, okay, easy for you to be critical. You can always go home eventually. But the pressure, how is it gonna come from within? And it, it's interesting with that former minister who wrote the op-ed in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he was actually sort of called on the carpet, wasn't he? Koga, for being, that's yeah, right. Koga. And so he writes this piece in the, in the New York Times. And I, I thought that might be good to see that even somebody who had a very high level position, he feels like he's being singled sure. out too. So he's mm -hmm. not some citizen blogger. You know, this is a guy who's been in the in the uh, corridors, the most inside corridors of politics in Japan. So he might be more credible then. Sure. Well, I think Japan has had a, a pivotal role in geopolitics and in uh, global finance. And I think uh, it's just fine for them to be out of the spotlight. They've right. got their own issues. The economy is still in the tank. Uh, Abenomics has not quite kicked off. They've got issues, and I think they're trying to keep a a uh, cover on them to the degree possible. You know, too, with the uh, press, I think there was uh, an excitement about Abenomics because Japan really came back <clears throat> into people's consciousness. Mm -hmm. That, of course, along with 311. So uh, the, the disaster inadvertently led to sort of more interest mm -hmm. in Japan. And now with this greater interest and an increase in scrutiny, that's when you see the government yeah. trying to manage it more. Well, I think Japan has a great reputation globally. I think people yeah. genuinely like Japan. Right. They like Japanese people. When Japanese tourists come in, they project themselves very positively. Mm. They don't leave a mess. They spend money and mm -hmm. they come back. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people want to see Japan back on track. They want to see Japan succeed. I think that that's a good story. It's just that we haven't quite gotten there yet. You know, I, I had a wonderful meeting this week, two and a half hours with a group of U.S. undergraduate students in the sciences. That also is a story, science and technology about Japan. I think there it's should huge. be <clears throat> even more emphasis on that mm -hmm. because Japan could be, in terms of nation branding, really a model for the world. I told those students that Japan is the equivalent of that canary in the coal mine. All the problems that other countries are having or will have are happening right now mm -hmm. here. And so that, that they should be leading that narrative of this is how you do more with less. <laughs> this is how you recycle. This is how you have a sustainable economy. These science students were <clears throat> asking me about renewable versus non-renewable energy sources. Mm -hmm. They really kept me on my toes. But what I loved is that they were brand new to Japan. And here I was as an expert on Japan, so to speak, talking to them about Japanese values, Japanese mm -hmm. society. And it was really great conversation. And I, I, just, I just think of them, they're gonna be here all summer. And so they will go back then with their stories to tell. And this is something you never really get to follow too closely, but 
that multiplier effect of right. when they tell friends and family, sure. that can increase the interest then in reading stories about Japan. And that's what you really want, that personal connection right. in international relations. Well, although it's four years from now, the Tokyo Olympics will be a showcase of Japan's technology, their prowess in creating new devices, new ways of doing things, how you pay for things, that's right. uh, how you interact with uh, the salespeople or, or just making a net normal purchases or traveling. I'm really looking forward to that. It's a little bit early for us to have a have it as a topic of Tokyo on fire, mm. but uh, I think the, the whole world is waiting with bated breath for Japan to come out of this, this doldrum that they've been in for more than 25 years. Mm. And I think the, the opportunity of the Olympics is a, is a, great, uh, a great time for, uh, for Japan to, to bust out on that. There was um, a story, um, one of my favorite newspapers is the Washington Post, and there was a story this week uh, by the Tokyo correspondent for the Post about how it was related to something we've talked about with trying to attract younger people and sort of uh, ICT types or uh, people who are willing to return to the rural areas if they can have their companies and their broadband internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it was a wonderfully positive story about Japan and it showed the young man in his hammock. I mean, he was right outside this beautiful cabin. And he said, I can work and then I'll go take a hike into the woods and then I'll come back. And it just looked so attractive. Well, beneath it, if you read the story online, it said, read more. And the next two stories on Japan were about all of the protests in Okinawa against the relocation of the US military base and then the second story had to do with, uh, I think, with comfort women. I mean, it was something, oh, no, it was about changing the Constitution mm -hmm. uh, with the, the uh, collective self-defense. So a lot of the stories about Japan. Good news tend, story, bad yes, news, bad news. that's right. right. And the good news story was just so refreshing because mm -hmm. it also was outside of Tokyo. Because mm -hmm. Tokyo dominates so much of the coverage. Sure. And so, As you would expect. Yeah, you need to really celebrate those stories because it also just, it gets us beyond the Japanese are mm -hmm. to, oh, this is what some young Japanese guy is doing who's an entrepreneurial type. You could do that too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I, I hope the stories and the press and the, the, the freedom that people have to make comments. I mean, look at the internet, tweeting and, and posting your comments, writing blogs. That is as open here as it is anywhere else in the world. It just hasn't really surfaced up to the level of national newspapers or the, the television stations. There is a lot of discourse on Japanese TV. Usually it's humorous with tev television personalities or comedians, and they do talk about a lot of these issues. But I think there are a lot of stories that are just not quite, I mean, the, the, you know, some of them really need to be dealt with uh, frontally and acerbically, you know, with with passion and, and with, with clarity. And I think that's, that's sometimes missing uh, for the general press. The general press for the, the foreign readers and the general press for the Japanese readers, I think, is, is unfortunately um, distinctly different. Uh, they try and get the same kernels of those stories out, but obviously in the Japanese context, it's much richer, it's deeper, it, it involves a lot of personalities. And um, 
Most of the stories, you asked this question earlier, most of the stories are not about the issues, they're about the personalities. Last week we were talking about opposition parties, and the opposition parties are formed not so much on issues as they are on personalities. So that's, that's something that you see uh, throughout uh, Japanese culture and politics and, and history and how things are actually done here. Well, and that's true in international relations. I mean, it's always driven by personalities. Or if Angelina Jolie goes to a refugee camp, I mean, it's going to get a lot more mm -hmm. coverage. I get that. I do think there's a lot of creativity in Japan, and there's an interesting sort of conundrum related to creativity. Adobe Systems, which we know through our PDF files, which is based in Silicon Valley, a couple of years ago had a survey, uh, I think it was US, UK, Germany, France, and Japan, asking people uh, which of those five countries are the most creative. Mm -hmm. and. Um, all the other countries besides Japan said Japan was the most creative country, and then Tokyo was the most creative city. Interesting. So the Japanese themselves, though, who were surveyed, said the United States was the most creative and that New York City was the most creative city. So I started to wonder what's going on with this lack of recognition of creativity. And I think um, there was an interesting tidbit that came out of the survey. The, the Japanese uh, respondents associated creativity exclusively with the arts. So that somebody could be creative as a painter or a musician. It's sort of like an industry How off to that? itself. And that then made me think about Cool Japan initiative. And some of the criticism of Cool Japan is that it's sort of this industries that are already successful with the talent that's already there, where the it, it's kind of manufactured stories that are already packaged and ready for right. sale around the world. Creativity, though, is an individual uh, initiative. You can be creative in... A speech or in a writing. Sure. I mean, everybody has creativity. So why isn't it being seen here when the world is looking at isn't Japan? That, isn't that interesting? Because Japan is the world worldwide leader in producing and publishing global patents. I know. So that creativity. <clears throat> but one of the commenters, one of the respondents who said it's Japan that's so creative, he said, look at how someone will even sweep outside a temple. They will do I've it. done that. I've yep. just stopped in my tracks to see someone with that old style brush and just the attention to detail Metic working around right. monuments or mm. it, it's just remarkable. But it could be sort of a difference in even the uh, the language, I mean, in terms mm -hmm. of how one views creativity. But there's something there. Though. Yes, there is. <laughs> right. Okay, well, with that, let's just wrap that part up. Let's talk about issues of topical importance this week in Japan. These are not quite burning issues, but potentially they could be. They're issues that are going on right now. They have impact on politics, on culture, on the economy. What's going on today with you, Nancy? What's going on with me is that I'm very anticipatory about next week because I'm traveling to a part of Japan I've never been Hokkaido. to. Hokkaido. And uh, even though my talk is similar to the talks that I give on Nation Brand Japan, very interested in seeing how different it might be there, not just regarding cuisine, but also just what issues are they really concerned with? Because I doubt they're going to be so Tokyo-centric mm -hmm. 
I predict that you're going to come back with great stories about how beautiful Hokkaido is, how beyond what you thought it might have been, it turned out to be. It's a, it's a, it's the wilderness as far as um, the rest of Japan is concerned. It used to be completely the wilderness, and um, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's it's very different from the main island. Well, and how many nuclear power plants do they have up there? I'm not sure. <laughs> But I, you know, I, people keep telling me how much I will enjoy it. And mm -hmm. so I just find that Japan is wonderful to discover when you get outside greater Tokyo. You know, there's Tokyo and then there's Japan. That's right. Yes. That's right. And so even in terms of place branding, I'd like to see more of that take place mm -hmm. at the municipal level, the prefecture, um, even with Fukushima. You know, we, in our minds, I sort of immediately, like everybody else, go to nuclear disaster. And and yet that is a very rich region in uh, produce and uh, Fishing, producing. Yes, yeah, right. and, and it's a beautiful Cows, milk, area butter. too. Yes, it is. So if anybody wanted a challenge, it would be to rebrand Fukushima so that people would be wearing Fukushima t-shirts and hats and... Uh, see it, the landscape interpretation, like what I was saying earlier with the press, not just spotlight a disaster. So, right, well, yeah. there's there's still a lot of negative stories going on there, and I think it, it'll be a while for the good stories you know, really rise up. Well, the issues that I'm particularly interested in this week, I'm interested in what's going on with the yen dollar value. Mm. Today, it is pegged at about 124 yen to the dollar. This is the lowest the yen has been in 12 years, and it looks like it's going to be continuing. That's really got plenty of impact for importers, for the regular economy. We've got the tax um, impact that's going to be hitting this time next year as well. It's a pretty big issue. The governor of, of the Bank of Japan, Kuroda, is promising that he's going to do things to keep inflation at bay. And so it's a very big issue. Well, as an educator coming from the United States, it does concern me that we're going to have an even further drop in the number of Japanese students than going to the U.S. It's going or, to be more costly. Right. right. And now, hopefully, they'll still get off of Japan, the island, and go maybe regionally, go somewhere else uh, where it might be more affordable. But mm -hmm. I think it's still really important to get away from your home country and gain a perspective from that. Uh, that's been showing year-on-year -year declines, hasn't mm -hmm. it? That's right. The second issue that's occupying my thoughts are what's going on in the diet right now. The, the debate on the self-defense forces, what does it mean, collective self-defense? How can they uh, utilize? What does coming to the aid of, a, of an ally mean? What are the scope of, of opportunities for the self-defense forces to actually be engaged in potential conflict. Now, I think that Abe assured the populace and members of the Diet that the change to Article 9 would not then lead to Japan coming to the aid of the U.S. intervening in XYZ country. So what does it mean then? No, I think <laughs> that's actually the debate. that's actually the debate that's going on now. And his defense minister is saying some things that are not quite in tune with what the prime minister is saying. So it's not quite that the cat is out of the bag, but yes, there is plenty underfoot. And I think there is reason for people to be concerned about what actually this reinterpretation, these laws that will be changed, what do they mean? What's the impact and how will they be utilized in situations that we really can't foresee now? 
There was another story that was shocking to me, and it was the number of suicides of right. self-defense forces over, uh, what was the time span? It was about it a, was, a 10 year period. Right, so 56 or That's so. Right. Uh, this had never really come to light, mm -hmm. had it? And uh, wow, that really says something again. It, it, it's comparable to the, the horrific number of suicides we've had with returned soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, I don't even know how the comparison is because there are thousands and thousands of returning, right. not only returning because the suicides are not just for returning um, armed forces in the United States. They're right. also on duty. They're Sure. And then, I don't mean the number's the same, but I mean, it, it says something about the psyche of the person returning because you've got someone who was right in, in the heart of crisis and the adrenaline rush of that, and then having your brothers in arms and sisters in arms, mm -hmm. and then you return to, hmm, now what am I going to do? Right. Um, and, and that's sort of that universality of the of the returnee, but as you say, it's not just returnees, but it's something that uh, is a really troublesome aspect. Maybe we should talk about that uh, in our next uh, Tokyo on Fire because it is an interesting part of of what's going on and, and soldiers and what happens with soldiers and what's the, the national trend. I mean, uh, the Japanese have a national character and what would what would cause them or allow them to take their own life in light of other options that are available and I'm sure the dynamic is completely different in the United States. It'd be interesting to examine that. Yeah, I think so. Well, thank you for joining us on Tokyo on Fire. Today's burning issue that we've been discussing is press freedom in Japan. Thank you very much for contributing your comments and suggestions. You can do that by posting to comments at tokyoonfire.com. You can also visit our webpage, tokyoonfire.com, or tweet to us at hashtag tokyoonfire. Comments and suggestions are encouraged and appreciated. You can post them directly into the comment box on YouTube. And also, this podcast is available on iTunes. Thank you very much for watching. My name is Timothy Langley. Please join us next week.